And so this morning, as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you would take your word and work it within our hearts that, Lord, that we would truly know that we can rejoice because our names are written in heaven because of what Jesus did for us and dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave. And Lord, that we would know that you desire to use us in bringing that good news to others, to bring it with compassion and love to a world that is in darkness, that is, uh, Lord, hurting, that is in, uh, Lord, a place that they need to hear the good news. So Lord, touch our hearts with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, good morning. You may be seated as we're going to continue our study in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, as we dismiss the middle schoolers, they're going to go upstairs to their lesson. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Luke's gospel. We ended at chapter 10, verse 16 last time. So we're going to start reading at verse 17, Luke chapter 10, third book in the New Testament, verses 17 through 37. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible, hand it to you so you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 17. And you recall, if you've been with us in our study of Luke, that Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, as we saw in the previous chapter, as he has now steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has said goodbye to Galilee, where he has spent most of his earthly ministry, said goodbye for the last time before his crucifixion. And he is working his way to the middle section of the country called Samaria and then down to Judea, the southern area of the nation where the city of Jerusalem was. He's in the Jordan Valley. He has sent, as you recall, uh, the 70 out as we opened up chapter 10 last time, 70 disciples to go uh, to every city and place where he was about to go to give a message that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And now as we pick up our text here, we read that they return, verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I like that Dr. Luke records that the 70 return with joy because that is what serving the Lord and going out for the Lord to give a message of the kingdom of God will bring to you and to me and to this church corporately. When we are doing what the Lord has called us to do, when we are in the place that he desires for us to be, just given that message of truth and the gospel and the kingdom of God has come, and there is a cost in serving the Lord. We know that because there's going to be attacked. Uh, he would say in, in verse 3 of the chapter, to the 70 that I send you out as lambs among the wolves. And we know that uh, the world's going to come against us. We know that the enemy's going to come against us. And it can be difficult at times. And even we can have a, a season or a day or, or different times where we can even feel fearful. But over time, as you're serving the Lord, as you're his ambassador going out into you know, the place where he has you and the people that are linked to you as you give that message of the gospel, of the truth of God's word, the kingdom of God, you're going to experience joy. So what we're to do is we're to continue to put our hand to the plow and not look back. And just being and doing what God has called us to, and over time, we're going to have joy in our hearts and joy in our life. And we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. You see, that's why I desire to see you serve, not that it becomes a burden to you, 
We're going to talk about that next week as we're going to see Mary and Martha, that as Jesus comes to their house, the burden that Martha had in serving. But I pray that as we serve him, as we're going out and being a light for him and a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ, that we will discover that that's where real joy is and satisfaction and real purpose in life and real fulfillment. It's in serving the Lord and being sent out by the Lord. And listen, that joy unspeakable that the Lord wants to give to you and to me is not going to be found if you prioritize the hobbies and get all involved in the latest fads and your philosophy in life is I'm going to live for myself. And as I mentioned on Wednesday, I like that acronym, joy, J-O-Y. You want to have joy in your heart, that joy unspeakable? What is joy? It's more than happiness. It's greater than happiness that's dependent upon circumstances. It's something, just a deep sense of satisfaction and a deep sense of peace and of just assurance and confidence in the Lord and rest in your heart that you can have that in your heart as you realize that joy that is Jesus first, others second, and you last. J-O-Y, you want to have joy? It's Jesus first, it's others second, and it's you last. That flies right in the face of what the world is going to tell you. But I'll tell you the truth because the Bible declares it, that if you want to get over the blues and you want to beat the bummers, that it's Jesus first, it's others second, and it's you last. If you reverse that where it's Y-O-J, that it's you first and others, and then Jesus, if I got time for you, over time what will happen is you'll be wondering, you'll be wrestling, you'll be dry in your heart and in your soul, and you'll be wondering what is life all about. I'll tell you what it's about, that you were created for his good pleasures according to Revelation chapter 4. You were created as the Lord created you because he knew all about you. He knew you before you were even born. And he created you for his good pleasures, for you to know him, to worship him, to give your life to him. And anything else other than that, you're going to end up being unfulfilled and unsatisfied in life. And you were created for good works in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us. You see, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. It's, it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It, it's given to us so that as a free gift, we don't boast, as Ephesians 2 and 8 says. See, we're saved by grace, believing in him but through faith coming and recognizing that I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus. That's why he came to die for us. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 goes on to say, but you are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works beforehand. In other words, he desires to do a work in you. So you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, but you were created for good works to serve him, to just walk with him, to know him. And as you do... You know what's going to happen? You're going to discover the joy of the Lord. And you're going to go out and share the good news. And you're going to serve the Lord wherever he has you and what he desires for you to do. And that's my prayer for you individually and for this church family. Not only having and experiencing joy as we know him, as we worship him, as we serve him, but then bringing that joy to others as we go out into the harvest field. 
You see, it was Philip in Acts chapter 8. It says that as he went up into Samaria, that area that Jesus has just passed through, that as he would give the gospel and revival had broken out, people coming to Christ, it says that he brought joy, great joy to that city. And you will have joy not only in your life as you give the message of the gospel and the truth of God's word, but also wherever you go, you're going to bring that joy to others in your life. So here these 70 come out, sent out by the Lord, and they come back and they're excited. They said again, verse 17, as we read, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We went out and things were happening. We saw victory. We saw miracles. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. We saw so much power and blessing. It was incredible, Lord. And he responds in verse 18 and said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Kind of an interesting response. You might think that's kind of odd. They come back, you know, excited about what has happened in their ministry and the power to, uh, of God flowing through them. And, and Jesus says, um, I saw, you know, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does he mean by that? Why would he say that? Well, a couple of suggestions here. Number one, it could be that he's saying to them, when you guys were out, you 70, ministering and sharing, I saw Satan being shot down because of what you were doing. The kingdom of darkness was being beaten back, in other words, and light was breaking forth, and Satan and darkness was falling down. I saw what was happening. Satan shot down when you were serving. And by the way, a lot of times you hear, uh, you know, pastors pray or you see it on TV. I bind you, Satan. And I think that this is, as we look at this, really what it means to bind the enemy. It's more than just a cliche that we say. And I'm not necessarily knocking using that term, you know, binding Satan. But the main meaning of binding Satan as Jesus taught it is not so much a cliche that we say verbally, but it's a work that we do practically. And when you and I go out and share, we minister, helping those in need, sharing the good news, witnessing to those who are lost, that's when the enemy is beaten back by the deeds of what you do practically, more than just a cliche that, that we express verbally. Even if we do it with all excitement and emotion and all of that, the finest meaning of the phrase is what you do for the Lord and bringing forth light to others. Now, the second suggestion is that could Jesus be given these ambassadors a word of warning? You say, what do you mean a word of warning? Well, you're coming back. You're, you're rejoicing that the devils are subject unto you and that you were used in a very powerful way. And I want to remind you that I saw Satan fall long ago. And when did he fall? Well, the scripture tells us that when he was being used, he was the worship leader in heaven. He was a very powerful created being called Lucifer. And I saw Satan fall. Be careful. Be careful. That as you're being used in a powerful, mighty way, that pride doesn't fill your heart. You see, when ministry becomes more important to you than the Lord personally, pride can creep into our hearts. And we know that the Bible says that God will not share his glory with any man or any woman. Satan, Lucifer at that time, was so caught up in his abilities in ministry. What a worship leader that he was. He was the highest of angelic beings. He was the anointed cherub, and he wanted to be worshipped. Isaiah says that he says, I will sit on the throne. I will be like the most high. 
and it led to his downfall, all because he was full of pride. And so it very well could be that that event that Jesus is referring to, saying, hey, great, I know that you were blessed. I know that you're amazed at the power that, that you saw and how you were being used. But I saw Satan fall like lightning when he fell, filled his heart full of pride. And be careful that doesn't happen to you. Be careful that you don't get all caught up in the power flowing through you. Be careful and make sure that the priority is me. And you're doing it for me. And that the glory goes to the Lord as we are humbly being used of the Lord. And we have seen very clearly going through Proverbs on Wednesday the warning about being prideful. There's many verses that tell us, you know, about pride, the downfall, the folly of pride. And it's not good. Pride is never seen in a positive light. And many of you know the verse in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And as we serve the Lord, if we get prideful and we start, you know, exalting ourselves, it won't be long before you hear the sound of a crash that we're going to fall hard because, again, the Lord desires for us to serve him in humility and just at awe of him, doing it because of our love for him. So we want to make sure that, that our priority is him, not the ministry and the power, but rejoice in him and what he has done for us. As verse 20, he, he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in what you are doing. Rejoice in what I have done on your behalf. That you're saved, that I died for you, you're going to go to heaven, and that your names are written there. That's what you sh truly should be rejoicing in. Certainly, it's exciting when we have people tell us, you know, how God is using them, or we see it, or how God is using ourselves, you know, what's happening uh, as we go out to serve the Lord. But I tell you, we should be a rejoicing people, whether you think big things are happening or not, in the fact that Jesus chose you, that Jesus chose me, and that your name is written in the book of life. We should realize that the greatest wonder of all is the reality of salvation. That is where real rejoicing is centered in, not in just what I do for him, but what he's already done for me. Rejoice that your names are already written in heaven. And in verse 21, as we continue in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So Jesus rejoicing, he says, thank you, Father, that you've revealed the truth to these, these babes, he says. As you recall, we have seen that it's the religious scholars, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, that they're not responding to the ministry of Jesus. They're not responding to the message of Jesus, the message of the kingdom. And in a few verses, we're going to see a lawyer that is a scribe who is an expert in the law of God. He's going to ask Jesus a question, testing him. The religious leaders are not responding. They're plotting is what they are. They're plotting to have Jesus be put to death. 
And Jesus here breaks out in praise. He says, thank you for the babes, Father. He's rejoicing. And that word rejoice in the Greek is referring to an exceptional rejoicing, an exaltation in rejoicing. And as I think about this, it's absolutely incredible that Jesus rejoices that I'm going to go to heaven. It should cause you to rejoice, to know that, that Jesus rejoices that you're going to go to heaven and be with him for all eternity. And one of my favorite verses is in that little epistle, the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And at the end of that epistle, Jude writes that he who is able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, will present you faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. I think that's absolutely amazing. You see, when we go take our last breath here, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we go home to, to, to be with the Lord, he's the first one I believe that we're going to see. Oh, we hear all the jokes about Peter at the pearly gates and all this with this list. It isn't going to be any of that. We're going to see Jesus. And those eyes of flames, Revelation chapter 1, and those eyes of love are going to look at you and me. And he's going to say, I, I just imagine him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And I just picture the Lord putting his arm around us and welcoming us into the throne room of God the Father. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you. Incredible grace. So great a salvation that we have. And you see, that's our future as Christians, as believers, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why he's saying, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Know that what I have done is he would go to the cross and die for our sins soon after that. And here, as, as he continues talking to these guys, he rejoices that we are going to go to heaven to be with him that we have a relationship with him. But he also rejoices on this side of eternity that you desire to bring pleasure to him and how you live and how you serve him. And you might be thinking, Lord, I don't have a whole lot to give. I don't have a lo whole lot to offer. What am I to do? Where am I to go? You keep growing and he's going to show you and he's going to continue to work through you. And know this, that Paul would write to the Corinthian believers that it is God that delights in using the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And it's in Acts chapter 4 that Luke writes that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that Sanhedrin council, they marvel when they heard the wisdom of Peter and John. They're thinking, how did those fishermen get such wisdom? And as they're wondering, the answer was that Peter and John had been with Jesus. That's why they were marveling. And that's the key for you and for me. You spend time with the Lord. You keep growing in the Lord. You keep growing in the word of God. And you'll be so wise that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the scholars of the world are going to take note and they're going to say, where did you get that wisdom? It comes from him. And it comes from the word of God. And so Jesus' joy makes him break out into pray, to prayer. He, he praises God the Father for his wisdom, for his plan 
for his unique relationship with God the Father. You see, in verse 22, as we look at it again, three things that Jesus highlights. Number one, his unity with the Father. He says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. Secondly, his special relationship with the Father. No one knows the Son, or no one knows who the Son but uh, the Father and who the Father is but the Son. And then thirdly, how God allows us to have a very special part in that special relationship, as he says, in the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. How do you know the Father? People will come to us and say, well, I know God, really. Or they might ask, how do you know God? There's only one way. And that's what God's word declares, and that's through the Son, Jesus Christ. God is so immense. He's so huge. Do you realize that the Milky Way galaxy is 100 million light years long and 10 million light years wide? So traveling the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100 million years to get across the length of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's just one galaxy. There are billions upon billions of galaxies, many of them much larger than our Milky Way galaxy. And yet, the Bible declares that our Lord spans the universe between his thumb and his little finger. Now, that's big. That's immense. So how do we know such a big, huge, vast God? Oh, great is the mystery of godliness, Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that God would become a man manifesting himself in Christ Jesus. It would be in that upper room right before Jesus went to the cross. The disciples are saying, show us the Father that it may suffice us. Oh, you've been with me all this time? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the Father is like, then look at Jesus. If you want to know the nature and character and the essence of the Father to know him, look at Jesus because Jesus reveals the Father perfectly. No one knows who the Son is but the Father and who the Father is but the Son. He would say, the the Father and I are one. Jesus reveals the Father to us and that's how we know him. And then in verse 23, he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Ever wish when you read the Old Testament, you could go back and see some of the things that took place in the Old Testament, like maybe the plagues coming down upon Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea or maybe the... the you know, Shekinah glory out there in the wilderness, God's glory in the tabernacle. Ever wish that you could live in the days of Elijah, Elisha, where fire came down from heaven. He flew up into heaven in a fiery chariot. We read about the miracles uh, of those prophets. Maybe the days of David, the great warrior, and being in the valley of Elah, where he slew the giant Goliath. We think, wouldn't that be cool to see to be a witness to all those things, all the miracles and mighty things that took place. The earth opened up and and fire on the mountain and all this stuff. And Jesus is saying to us through this passage that all the prophets and the kings and the mighty men were disadvantaged compared to you, compared to me. Because we understand more fully what they were writing about, what they were illustrations of. They didn't comprehend They wondered about the things that they were writing. They were curious about the things that were happening. 
They did not see the full picture. Jesus said, blessed are you, happy are you, because you understand what they didn't. You know what they couldn't. That it's all focused and centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And again, that is my hope and prayer for your life personally and for the life of this church corporately, that we might be continually and constantly focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, churches and and Christians can get so focused on the latest happening, what's the latest movement blowing through the church, the latest manifestation, the, the, the new understanding, what's the latest book that everybody's trying to read and focus on. May you and I keep focused and centered on the nature and person of Jesus Christ. When Paul first came to Corinth, he said, I'm determined to preach nothing to you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And how easy it is for people and for churches, for ministries to start getting centered and focused on secondary matters and we get distracted away from the Lord. Jesus says, hey, these Old Testament guys, the prophets, the kings, What they are desiring to see, you have seen. And what they are desiring to hear, you have heard. Because it all comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. And Elijah and Moses and David would say to you and to me, oh, how blessed you are. Because you see the whole story. Blessed are you because of what you have seen and what you know. And then in verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Matter of fact, this is the most important question that anybody could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But you see, this scribe coming to Jesus, he's not asking sincerely. We read in in, in verse 25, he came testing him. He's trying to ensnare Jesus intellectually. And maybe perhaps that's happened to you. You've been approached by somebody who asks you a question about the Bible or Christianity, about your faith, about Jesus. And they're not asking because they want to get an answer. They're not sincere. But what they want to do is let you know how they think. They're trying to set you up, kind of like they're setting the table for a game of chess. And here's my move. And as they keep asking and prodding and poking you, that they're hoping that they can back you in a corner, hoping that they can say, checkmate. And I think that's partly what's happening here. This guy was not really asking sincerely. He's asking to test him, we are told. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? You're an expert on Jewish and Mosaic and rabbinical law. How do you read it? Jesus would say. So the scribe answered in verse 27 and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. It's a good answer the great Shema of the book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second part is love your neighbor as yourself. Excellent. This do and you shall live. This is what the law is all about. The law, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament law. This do and live. If you do it, then you're going to live. But here's the problem. We know from the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, the New Testament, that it isn't do and you will live because we can't. 
we don't and we didn't. You see, this do and live, guess what? We didn't and we don't and we can't. Because we've fallen short, we've broken the law. And Paul writing to those Galatian believers, he would say, listen, no one's justified by the law because what the law does is it doesn't declare you righteous, it declares you guilty. It shows how you've fallen short of the glory of God. That you are a sinner. It's a schoolmaster to drive us to the only one that can save us, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us have sinned. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come just as another religious leader. He came, the Son of God, to go to that cross to die for our sins. And all of our sins were placed upon him. And he would cry out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And now we live and then we will do. In other words, we come in faith. And we are justified freely by his grace through faith as we come to him and believe in him that, Lord, I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior of the world, and surrender our lives to him. And then our sins are forgiven and we are justified. That's a legal term used in the book of Romans to mean just as if I've never sinned. Washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and coming to him in faith and surrendering our life to him. Then we're born again by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts to enable you to then live a life in the way that the Lord wants you to. You first got to give your heart to the Lord and be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if one wants to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is going, wait a minute here, this very religious man in John chapter 3, what do you mean? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Oh, Nicodemus, you're the master teacher of Israel. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say you must be born again. And as we come to Christ, just as Ephesians chapter 2 says, that we're dead, dead spiritually. We're alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. But God, by his great grace and love for us, has made us alive as we come to him. And many of you had the testimony, just as me, when I first came to Christ, I didn't realize how empty I was and wondering and wrestling with life and unfulfilled. And when I came to Christ, I felt alive for the first time. Because that's what coming to Christ does and being forgiven and the joy of the Lord and the peace of God. Because now, as we come to Christ, we have peace with God and then the peace of God that's in our hearts. But this lawyer here is still talking in terms of the law, this lawyer measuring himself against both commands. He figured he met the first one well enough, so verse 29, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this lawyer responds, he makes his move here, doesn't he? He, he wants to be philosophical and complex. Jesus is going to respond, and he makes it simple and very practical. Jesus here defines neighbor with an illustration, a familiar story to many of us, the story of the Good Samaritan, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who st stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's about 20 miles. It's a steep descent, about 2,500 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho, who's down in the Jordan Valley, uh, down there by the Dead Sea, the lowest place in the face of the earth. Uh, 
And, and that stretch of road was notorious for being a place where, you know, it was dangerous. You would have those thieves that would hide to rob people. It was extremely dangerous to travel on that road. It was Jerome in the third century that called that roadway the bloody way. And here Jesus says there is a guy, a certain man that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. And these thieves stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. You know, that's what Satan does. Satan, he's a thief and a liar, Jesus said. And he's here to rob you. He's here to steal from you and to beat you up and to leave you for dead. The scripture says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so here's this one lion at the, the edge of the road. You know, he's bleeding. He's black and blue. He's left for dead. And verse 31 is Jesus continues to tell this story. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. The priests in that day, of course, were part of the religious power that, that controlled the people. And, and they were the ones that did the duties in the temple. And then verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side. So the Levites were the ones that assisted the priests in the work of the temple, other religious leaders. So the priests and Levites, both categories of religious officials, see this individual lying in a terrible state and neither of them do anything. They both pass on the other side of the road. Maybe they're thinking that, well, I, I don't have time to stop. We got to get to the temple. I got to get to the temple to perform my service to the Lord. I got things to do for the Lord. I got ministry to do. I can't stop and minister to this person. Maybe they're thinking this guy brought this problem on himself. He should have never been out on this road alone at that certain time of the day. It's a dangerous road. And I wonder if that was part of their attitude. Maybe they're thinking, well, it's his own fault. It's his own fault. And I know that those are attitudes that can be in me. What do I do? What do you do? When we walk by and see a person lying on the street, if you would, and their journey in life that's been all beaten up by the enemy. And I know that unfortunately there have been attitudes in my heart saying, well, you should have never gone down that dangerous road. He or she, you, you should have never done that. You brought this on yourself. You're reaping what you're sowing. You're getting what you deserve. And these two just passed by the other side of the road. It was Charles Swindoll that said, we don't lack for knowing, but we lack for doing. And then Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Again, to remind you the history that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other, didn't talk with each other, didn't converse with each other. They despised each other, both racially and religiously. So Jesus talks 
to this lawyer. Keep in mind, Jesus is relating this story to him. The priest and the Levite were two individuals that the lawyer described would have respect for and look up to, the political and religious leaders of the land. And the Samaritan would be one that would be despised and looked down upon. And this Samaritan, this very special Samaritan, looks at this individual and has compassion on him. He saw this individual lying on the road, beat up and half dead, and he has compassion for him and begins to minister to him. And I do find it interesting as Jesus is telling this story that it would be in John chapter 8 that as Jesus is talking about, as they said, what authority do you do these things? I do it by the authority of my Father. And the religious leaders could not respond to Jesus. All they did was begin to get their digs in. Well, we weren't born out of fornication. We're Abraham's children. And that was a dig. That was an insult to Jesus. We weren't born out of fornication. The implication was, you were. We know the story about Mary. We weren't born out of fornication. You were. And then later on in the chapter, they said, but you're a Samaritan and have a demon. It was like calling him a cuss word. And I wonder if that's why Jesus plays in this Samaritan in this story. But we see this special Samaritan showing compassion, verse 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. And he said, this describes said, this, uh, this, uh, he couldn't even say the word. <clears throat> well, the one who showed mercy on him. You go and you do likewise. Listen, a couple more minutes and we're done. This lawyer described asking the question that is posed to us, who is my neighbor? And I think that Jesus is showing us something that reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians because they were all into intellect and philosophy and all of this. That Paul said that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And this scribe who was an expert in the law, who knew the word, every dot and tittle of it, in my life, I will continue to study the Word of God and to teach it. And in our growing in the Word of God, we need to be careful that in knowing Him and knowing the Scriptures and our walk with Jesus, that it doesn't become just knowledge puffed up and it's not love edifies. Jesus said to His disciples right before He went to the cross, they will know that you're my disciples by how much you know how much knowledge you have and intellect you have? He didn't say that. They will know that you're my disciples for your love for one another. You see, you've heard me say this before. You, you've heard the saying, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. They really don't care how much you know. They want to know if you care. And this scribe wanting to justify himself and who is my neighbor, the question isn't so much who is my neighbor, but Jesus answers, what kind of neighbor are you going to be? Listen, this challenge can be for us is that we know the scriptures 
We grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the word of God. And listen, those of you who've been around here long enough, that is a priority here. Because that's the way to get to know him and know truth and to grow spiritually and have discernment in a day in which we're living in, to know the scriptures, to be students of the scripture, to be one that rightly divides the word of truth, a workman who needs not be ashamed, to be diligent to show yourself approved is what the word of God says. But it isn't just having a head knowledge and having all that knowledge and not serving the Lord or showing compassion and love towards those who are beat up and wounded, who are hurting. And we can have a pharisaical spiritual position and attitude and not respond to someone who genuinely has need, who's hurting, and no compassion is showed. And I want to bring it a little bit closer home to us because it might be you, husband, and how you treat your family, how you treat your wife. And you stomp around your house and you're the know-it-all. Everything centers around me. And you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. You're not cherishing her and serving her and loving her and willing to lay down your life for her. And that's what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church. It may be that you have a chip on your shoulder at work or to other family members or whoever it might be linked to you in your life. That the interesting challenge that is the context that the Lord asked us this morning is this. How do you read it? How do you read it? And I have to be careful because there is enough scribe and priest and Levite in me that I can think I'm a pastor and I've studied the Bible and I teach the Bible and I have the compassion and love that the Lord desires for me to have to others and to ignore and to put down and look down. And when I live that way, I live below the standard of Christ. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And then quickly and will be done. This is a picture of Jesus the one they called the Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. And this story here, this Samaritan, he goes by and he ministers. This guy who's half dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we're dead spiritually who don't have Christ. We're alive physically. But Jesus, the one who went to the cross for you and by his stripes we are healed. He saved us because of his compassion and love for you. That's why he went to the cross. And just as this Samaritan brought this individual all beat up as he ministered to him and, and ministers to his wounds, he brings them to the end. And that's what the Lord does. He brings people who are hurting to this place, the end, Calvary Chapel. And we get the privilege to take care of, to help them to become strong spiritually, to live the downcast, the brokenhearted, the ones in despair, the ones that are hurting, the ones that are empty, the ones in bondage. And he will provide the means for us to be able to do that. And when he returns, which he is going to come back, he has his reward with him. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. The religious ones could not do anything for that man in this story. But it isn't religion that we give to people. We tell them about relationship. 
that they have opportunity to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for a story that we could spend a lot of time on considering, but, Lord, the text that we covered this morning, I pray for us that, Lord, that we would apply it. Lord, help us. That we would serve you, to have the joy of the Lord in our hearts, and, Lord, to have compassion. And we know that there's a world out there that there is great darkness and wickedness. And, and Lord, we don't want to be cynical all the time. We want to be wise. We want to be discerning. We want to be compassionate. To just be a light to others. To tell them the good news of the gospel that they don't know. To be able to tell them that Jesus loves them and died for them. And I pray if there's anyone here listening on live stream or maybe you're going to listen later to a message on the, the website or a CD or on the radio later, you're here in this place today that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The question asks, how do I have eternal life? There's only one answer. That's through Jesus Christ. It is not by trying to be a good person because none of us are good enough. We've all fallen short of the standard. <laughs> the standard that God has put, we've broken. It declares that we're guilty and that's why Jesus came. He came and he died for you. And as he took that cross and walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem to that place of execution, he did it because he loves you. He saw you. He knew all about you. He knew that you would be in this place the last of October 2016 and he says I love you and it was his love that kept him on that cross as he took your sins upon himself and then he cried out it is finished I've done the work I've paid the price I've died for your sins and he was put into a grave and the tomb is empty he rose again after three days the body is not there He's the only one that died for you and conquered sin and death, proving that he's the son of God, validating what he did for you on the cross. And he says, come to me, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know what would happen to you if you were to die today, tomorrow, this week, you don't know if you are right with God Call out to him right now. So whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise of scripture. You come as you are, recognizing your need to be forgiven and call upon the Lord. He loves you. He desires to forgive you, give you real purpose, to have a relationship with you. It's not just religion. Will you give your life to him? Today is the day of salvation. You can pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you and I confess that I have sinned. And I ask that you would forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And you're alive. You rose again because you're speaking to my heart. And I open my heart to you right now. And ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And sit upon the throne of my life. I want to know you, to walk with you, to experience you, to 
have that joy and peace that only comes from you, Lord. And I thank you for dying for me and saving me. Help me to know you and live for you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And listen, while we're being respectful, if anybody here prayed that prayer, will you do me a favor? Just put your hand up and put it back down. You're saying, I made a decision for Christ. Anybody at all in this sanctuary at this time? We're not going to prolong it, but you've made a decision for the Lord. Anybody at all? This is the most important decision you will ever make. If you're out in a coffee shop, you can do that. 